Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson and joining me today is Candice Lepage. And Candice, uh, it's snowing and blowing outside, which is going to be a stark difference from when this episode goes to air. But it's yeah, it's, tell it's me good, about it. It's good Candice weather on the day we're recording. That's a good. It's Candace true. It's true. Weather. I'm holding it close. It's a good weekend. It's probably the last weekend of of proper winter weather until you know November. So, well, almost literally because it's uh, spring this coming weekend, or it's spring eve. I'm just I just created a new thing, spring eve. <laughs> sure, yeah, Spring Eve. <laughs> All right, and Creds is a local movie show for local movie fans. We're here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies. But this week will be the new coming-of-age animated adventure, surprisingly controversial, Turning Red, which you can now stream on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> The home of controversy lately, because they're adding all those naughty Marvel shows with sex and violence, too. So, uh, Plus all their stars content. <laughs> I watched a great horror film on Disney Plus <laughs> earlier this week. Yeah, that's it's kind of funny, the outrage from Americans and, you know, American moral majority people like, Oh my goodness, there's going to be sex and violence and swears on Disney Plus. My pearls are clutched. <laughs> anyway, um... <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to Turning Red, uh, which is a coming-of-age movie, and uh, that is prime fodder for uh, all types of stories and all types of films. And so Candace had the brilliant idea of dedicating the first part of our show this week to uh, pointing out some of our favorite coming-of-age movies that may or may not be animated, um, but are interesting and fun and delightful, perhaps painful, in their own way. So, Candice, why don't you get us started with your first of your three coming-of-age movies? Sure. Um, Yeah, I came up with this idea, and then I had to actually (laughs) decide. I had to actualize it. (laughs) I know, and uh, wow, it was really tough because, you know, I think a big part of the problem is that there's so many descriptions of coming of age so i had mm-hmm. sort of when i when i proposed it i had sort of thought of coming of age strictly in the way that turning red is coming of age in that it's like the the switch from child to puberty like child to teenager was mm-hmm. kind of what i was thinking when i proposed it but then as i was kind of thinking about other movies i'm like there's so many other sort of pivotal moments in a person between the age of say 12 and 20 Mm -hmm. in that person's life that there are so many stories told of other parts because i mean literally uh those of us who remember being teenagers like every single day you're learning something new and you're having a new emotion and you're learning to deal with a new emotion and like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just Mm -hmm. it's so much input all at once so um i i i did mostly stick to sort of my original which was more um the the younger age so mm. i'm gonna say my first one uh is a is a super downer and <laughs> it's it's a really specific sort of coming of age and it's the dealing with grief part of of you know coming of age but also still that 12 13 year old thing i also decided to make mine all uh, women protagonists mm-hmm. so despite the fact that i could be talking about stand by me i'm not <laughs> <laughs> i'm talking about my girl 
mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, gosh, it's just, it's, it hits so many notes of that, you know, incredible change from sort of 11 to 13 years old, right? Like sort of first crush um, because the, the character Veda, you know, develops a crush on one of her teachers, which is a very typical thing. The sort mm-hmm. of first kiss with her, her best friend, um, Macaulay Culkin's character, whose name I can't, uh, uh, j- <laughs> it's something <laughs> with a J, isn't it? I don't remember. I it's been a long time since I've yeah. watched it. So, um, but, uh, so the sort of like first, first kiss and first, like maybe kind of relationship, um, and then, of course, the the sort of first real loss and sort of grief. And of course, in the the story of my girl, um, the character Veda is has already dealt with grief in a lot of ways because her mom died in childbirth. So, you know, all her life she's had this sort of grief of not having a mother. But it's mm-hmm. you know probably hard for her to to explain and to understand like how can you grieve something that never was she does have to do that. She has to grieve the fact that she doesn't have a mother. And then her father runs a funeral home. So she's just, you know, surrounded by grief and the many different ways that it shows up in people all of the time. So, you know, she's, because she has this sort of un, unrecognizable grief of not having a mother, she really sort of delves into this kind of darker world and is a bit of an outcast. Um mm-hmm. And then, of course, she she actually comes to this place where you know her her best friend, as everybody who's ever watched My Girl knows, uh, her best friend Macaulay Culkin's character dies, and she has to deal with that. And it's horrible and awful. And thank mm. goodness we don't all have to go through that sort of coming of age. But there's just there's so much there, and it was so well done. And I mean. Granted, I haven't gone to the deepest, darkest parts parts of the internet, but I feel like it's kind of a universally liked film. Like it mm. was, it was just well done for all ages and and all genders. I'd say, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. You as a boy could tell me. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I I remember that hitting like a particular sweet spot in the career of Macaulay Culkin, like post Home Alone, where people got so sick of him they wanted to see him die on screen because so there's like <laughs> there was my <laughs> there was my girl and the good son um Ooh, they were yeah. kind of back and back he's playing entirely for character the good son but um yeah so <laughs> i remember that but you know looking back at that movie now uh you can really appreciate it for just it's um how delicately it handles things and how it you know when it hits you with the emotional punches it really hits you the scene at the uh, his funeral is is you know when um when she sees the body yeah when yeah when she, you know she's talking about how where's his glasses because he can't see without his glasses and it's uh it's so emotionally draining and you know who's really good in that movie as the dad Dan Aykroyd yeah yep yeah so that's uh that's like a kind of a rare like really great dramatic role for him. Mm-hmm. Um, for my first pick, I have something completely different. Um, it is called Dope. It is from uh, Rick Famayua. And uh, he's kind of, I was going to say he's fallen off the map. He hasn't entirely fallen off the map. He's directed several episodes of The Chai. And um, in my personal opinion, some of the better episodes of The Mandalorian. Uh, 
but the, the dope was kind of his last movie and it's a shame because it is so vibrant it is so funny um it, it's like I was going to say it's a funny version of Boys in the Hood, but it's not really that. Um, although there is kind of like <laughs> this 90s vibe because the three main characters are all these kind of like dorks who love uh, 90s hip hop. But, um, you know, it, it, it kind of paints this uh, neighborhood um, working class area of Inglewood is, is kind of this. Uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of, yeah, there's gang violence, but it's also funny gang violence. Cause there's like in the one shootout, one of the people involved in the shootout shoots himself in the leg before like <laughs> humbling, humbling out to his car and getting in and driving away in the middle of a gunfight. So it's, it's kind of dopey like that, but it's got like some real ma- malevolence in there. Like there are some real malevolent characters, but um, you know, it also deals with the essential goodness of, the main characters who are played by Shamik Moore, Tony Rivoli, and uh, Kiersey Clemens, um, who are just trying to, you know, make their way in this neighborhood. They're being drawn to bright futures, but they're also living in a high crime area and so find themselves living side by side with, um, you know, gangbangers and kind of other darker influences. And, you know, into this comes Zoe Kravitz as, uh, this neighborhood girl who the Shamik Moore character ends up um, he, she's an older woman, slightly older, uh, kind of just after high school age. Um, but he's helping her study to get her GED. And um, there's a really nice, sweet romance between them. And uh, at the same time, there's all this craziness going on because th- these three are caught in the middle of having to sell a lot of drugs very, very quickly or else um, they themselves are, in deep trouble with the local gang and uh it's it's funny it's scary at times but it's uh it's a hell of a lot of fun mm-hmm. um and surprisingly nobody dies <laughs> yeah yeah i i did uh, i watched this film um i think two years ago mm-hmm. during um uh, particularly in february during black history month i tried to really um uh, watch as as much sort of content uh, by and about Black creators as as I can find, and I remember this was one of the ones that I had uh, chosen to watch that that year because I'd never seen it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. But I definitely remember thinking the whole time, like this movie went <laughs> totally different than I thought it was going to go. Yeah. Like yeah. every step, I'm just like, oh, okay, that that didn't go the way I thought it was going to. And, and it was good. Like it, the way it went was still good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's surprisingly funny. And uh, yeah, I mean, and that's why it's a real shame that uh, Foma Yawa, he, you know, he just has not like, he was working on the flash movie for a while, but I mean, uh, I, I just kind of hate that, that here's this like really great um, director with a great voice, you know, <laughs> then forced to shuffle off this superhero hell and, <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with superheroes. No, it's just I, I'm I'm kind of in a place right now. Where I'm like, why are we sending all these people with you know distinct visual and you know writing flair to to superhero? Anyway, I don't know who yeah. I was channeling there. So <laughs> <laughs> why don't you go with uh, your number two? Yeah. So uh, my number two was was the film that was um, immediately on my list when I suggested it and never moved, never changed. Uh, this was like a, a seminal coming of age story for me in mm. my life and mm-hmm. continues to be something that I just hold on to with all my heart. And that's the journey of Natty Gann. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is like a, a, a Disney film. Uh, you could, I mean, you could really just say it's a boy and his dog story, mm-hmm. <laughs> except mm-hmm. it's it's a girl and her wolf. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, like it's a it's an adventure story. So so Natty Gann, Meredith Salinger, also in her like her first role ever. And I, every time I see her in everything, I'm just like, oh my god, Natty Gann is in this. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that she would appreciate that. I don't think that she would be upset that there are women like me around North America who see her still as like her first character of this, you know, 12 year old girl in 1930s Chicago in the middle of the depression. Mm-hmm. Um, similar to uh, my girl, she does not have a, a mother. We don't really know what happened to her, but, you know, assumed that she died. Um, and her father, Ray Wise, and one of his very rare, um, nice guy <laughs> characters, <laughs> but, you know, she's been raised by her father. And so, you know, as a girl in, a a kind of grimy urban world. She's quite a tomboy. She really fits in with all the boys. She smokes with them. You know, they sometimes go do a little like gambling or like rough and tumble sort of stuff. She fights along with them, which Mm. to me when I was younger was totally, I was like, oh my goodness, I've never seen a girl on film who is like me, who actually like is a tomboy and hangs out with the boys and like all of that. And then he has to go to get a job. It's just this, you know, it's the depression, right? He's trying to keep his kid alive, you mm. know, by being able to to support her. And he gets a job offer, but he has to be on a bus, like, you know, before the end of the day to Washington State to go do like tree logging. And he can't find his daughter. He can't tell her, like, you know, what's going on or anything. And so that just leaves her a note at the flat that they're staying at. And she decides to go after him, even though, you know, his plan was always to bring her bring her along eventually. Mm-hmm. So the story is just this journey of her going from Chicago to to Washington state to you know the the Pacific Northwest where he's tree logging and along the way she finds um the the colloquial term at the at the time of course being hobos and you know train jumpers and a wolf and John Cusack and <laughs> um uh you know and it's just this this great story of this girl who's just like she just won't take no for an answer and she just does it. And it doesn't matter that it's dangerous and it doesn't matter that it's not something girls do or that kids do, um, you know, and she's, she takes charge and just, just does it all with mm-hmm. the help of a wolf, mm-hmm. which also, you know, when you're about 11, 12, 13, that sounds pretty cool too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a subgenre that, Disney unfortunately doesn't really dabble in anymore. Uh, people and people and or animals trying to survive in the wilderness on their way to somewhere. So, is that on Disney Plus? By the way, it it is, and I rewatched it this weekend because I was okay. like, "Oh, we're doing this. I'm going to rewatch the Journey of Natty Gan," and it was just as great as I remember it. Okay, cool. Um, I forgot to mention dope is on Netflix. If anyone wants to see it, it's really easy to get. And my other, my, my next pick is also on Netflix. Uh, it is band slam, which uh, is about literally about kids forming a band or young people forming a band since they're all teenagers, not necessarily kids, but <laughs> calling them kids may be a reflection of my own uh, <laughs> ad- advancing years. Um, it stars uh, Ali McHale, I think her, how you say her last name, um, Galen Connell, 
and, and Vanessa Hudgens. And uh, Vanessa Hudgens is this kind of weird girl at school. She's her name is Sam. She except she spells it with a silent five, um, <laughs> <laughs> like scream, but with a silent five. With a silent five, yes. Uh, actually, come to think of it, that is exactly how they should have branded Scream twenty twenty two is with replacing the S with a five. But I digress. Um, I can't believe no one came up with that or it, it was rejected. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Galen Connell plays a uh, new kid at school. He's kind of introverted um, because his father is in jail for drinking and driving and killing a kid in the process. So he's, he's fortunately left his old school or he's bullied because of that fact. He's at a new school now. And this older girl played by Alan McKelka, um, sort of takes him under her wing um, and uh, she's trying to her ex-boyfriend basically stole her band so she's trying to start a new band so the the new kid will basically goes through school finds all the the funkiest weirdest musically inclined kids puts them together and basically uh, <laughs> arcade fire p- pastiche <laughs> and uh you know, uh, launches them uh, to this competition called Band Slam, where it's a bu- like a, basically a battle of the bands, where the the uh, the winner gets some kind of record contract or something. But it's also a lot about the inner worlds of these characters, and there's a romance because Will, um, you know, falls in love with Sam with a five, but at the same time, he's also attracted to Charlotte, who is the Ali McKelka character, and um, you know, she's kind of a, a Cyrano where he's she's giving him advice on how to mm-hmm. uh, seduce Sam and Sam with a five. And uh, Lisa Kudrow is great as kind of like a meddling mom who's not too meddling. She's maybe a little she's burgeoning on the border of overprotective. But um, s- still, you want you want Lisa Kudrow in your corner um, as she is for her son, Will and this. Um, very poignant, also occasionally funny, a lot of great music, plus bonus uh, David Bowie cameo at the end. So, Oh, goodness. Yeah, because the whole film is framed as Will sending these like live journal missives to David Bowie and David Bowie does uh, respond at the end. So, wow, uh, I'm definitely putting this on my to watch uh, it feels like it um, it hits all my my usual <laughs> yeah, sort of. A, I'm surprised this is not on the Candace watch list, but yeah. yeah. Well, it is now. It, it is, is now. now. I Good. also do. You know, I love a Cyrano story too. Yeah, it's a classic trope. <laughs> all right, so that brings us to numero three. All right, uh, this one is um, this one is definitely weird. So uh, uh, I I I'm not. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about like later aged teenagers and the coming of age story, as, mm-hmm. but uh, and you know, like I said at the beginning, I do think that there are there are steps and there are other things that they have to, you know, learn about. But mm-hmm. um, I do think this one, Carrie, actually still fits into the <laughs> younger category. Yes, because for Carrie. <laughs> even though she was about 16 in this film and like, it's all teenagers in high school, she really had the um, sort of emotional depth of, of a child up until the moment, you know, Carrie starts when she gets her first period, Mm -hmm. which typically happens to women, you know, closer to 
12 or, or 13 or, or even younger in some ages. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's very, very late. Uh, and so, I mean, this is, this is like, to me, the, the real literal for, for girls coming of age, you know, the, the sort of story of, of how women change through mm-hmm. menstruation is a, is a pretty, um, I mean, I mean, that's really turning red is a, a not, uh, <laughs> not that terribly disguised version of the same sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, the metaphor is pretty spot on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Carrie is just, and, and it's so funny because so often in coming of age stories, the audience is meant to sort of sympathize with the, the, you know, hero of the story, the person who's, you know, the story is told through. And in this case, mm. it's Carrie. And at the same time, Carrie is also the monster, which is so, um, I mean, in some ways it's a little liberating, right? Mm-hmm. Like to, to actually see someone be able to take all the actions you have in your head, because let's be honest, who hasn't thought about like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, murdering their entire like prom <laughs> class? Uh because, you know, while you don't really want to be saying that while you're in high school, because it, you might end up finding yourself seeing a psychologist and getting, you know, police well, come by. Especially now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's not something to, to, to laugh about, but it is a reality. And I think that if we talked about that a little bit more, we told kids that it's totally okay. Like, it's t- perfectly normal for you to be so mad at people that you'd want to commit violence towards them but mm. what makes us you know human and what makes us better people and and what we're trying to learn through this whole coming of age is how to not do that thing because it doesn't actually help right yeah so while there is some catharsis obviously in watching Carrie Carrie do this ultimately Carrie doesn't end up any better off right she's she's still the sympathetic character at the end who you feel sorry for and who has not actually come of age. In fact, because she sort of failed that, that test that we're all given. It's a warning about repression um, and, you know, keeping things bottled in and, you know, it's, it's weird that in the end I was, I was just sitting here when you're talking about Carrie. I was like, oh yeah, it's one of those Stephen King stories that you know, ha- it's it, it explodes in the third act, and it, it and it, it's just like he kind of basically seems to run out of steam. He's like, all right, now the story's over. Um, but you know, I think it does make sense in the end that she goes home and then basically <laughs> takes it out on, and, and and there's kind of like no recovery it's just the, all that's left to do is to go home and release what's left onto sort of like the source of your to- the, the last source of your torment which is the mother and then the house gets literally eaten into the ground and it's, it's like it was never there which yeah you know <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, they it's, almost weren't that the family yeah, you know, yeah which the is the kind of how family. we which is kind of how we want to treat those things too which is just you know uh, it's like it never happened. It's oh, this is an anomaly. It's not something that could ha- ever happen or should happen or people want to happen. Although it kind of happens all the time, in big and small ways. Like we all know what it's like to sort of be at the end of your rope, and you know when you've had enough. And it doesn't 
doesn't doesn't necessarily have to end in a massacre to end badly. <laughs> no, no, it could just end in a ruined friendship or a ruined yeah. relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, mine is also kind of my last one is also kind of a downer. It is on Prime. It is the spectacular now, and it stars Miles Teller and Shaley Woodley as uh, this teen couple. Uh, they meet. Literally, as Miles Teller wakes up one morning, passed out drunk on her front lawn, um, she is kind of this, again, this kind of like mousy, almost kind of carryish figure where uh, her dad is long gone. Um, so she's had to basically support her mom um, by being the best possible daughter, which means, you know, not going out and partying and hanging out with friends. And that all starts to change when she falls for the Miles Teller character, who is also kind of rebelling against his single mom. Um, but he's of course doing so by copying all the, all the worst traits of his, his um, alcoholic father. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like one of those odd coming of age stories that uh, doesn't end with like, <laughs> I was going to say the beautiful catharsis, although that, you know, Carrie's not necessarily a beautiful, catharsis, but it's, <laughs> You know, it, it, there, there's um, the ending to it where it just seems like the the Miles Teller character especially is kind of stuck in a cycle that he's never going to be able to escape mm -hmm. from. So the question is, can the Shaley Woodley character escape from the cycle and maybe take what she's learned in order to make herself a, a better version of herself, one that can sort of have that better um, balance between the the dutiful daughter and the studious um, young person and one who can sort of have fun responsibly and not um, <laughs> not get sucked into a black hole of you know perhaps permanently damaged and uh, tragic people like the Miles Teller character. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's a really poignant film, I think. And uh, like there the, were uh, the director James uh, Ponsolt, uh, he had like these two back to back indie hits uh, uh, that are ostensibly about alcoholism and the first one was Smashed, which is also really, really good. Not necessarily coming of age drama. It was about because uh, it was uh, the main character was an adult, but um, about the destructive side effects of, you know, indulging too much. Yeah, you mm -hmm, nailed it. Mm -hmm. he, he, did, he, he nailed it with two movies. So it's uh, the spectacular now, it, though, is um, it's definitely in the vein of coming of age, but it is not um, playing with a lot of those tropes in the, shall we say, the established ways. So intriguing. I'll put that one on my list, too. Put it on the list. Next, we'll talk about, uh, well, not about alcoholism and turning red, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Certainly some of the commentary around this movie has been enough to drive you to drink. Ugh, yeah. Anyway, we'll get into all that in a sec. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Right. I'm never not by your side, your side, your side. I'm never gonna let you cry, oh cry, no cry. I'll never not be your right, or die, all right. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
happened it's just some you know inconvenient uh genetic thingy i got from my mom i mean it'll go away eventually maybe <laughs> okay so that was a clip from turning red it is the new film from dami shi and it features the voice talents of rosaline chang sandra O, oh, ava morse high end park Mate Rai Ramakashkin, Orion Lee, Wei Chung Go, and James Hong, who is, if you have any movie where uh, you have Asian characters, I believe James Hong is contractually obliged <laughs> to appear. I think he has like 5,000 credits on IMDb. So. <laughs> and he's been acting for so long, you start to wonder, like, did he make a deal with the devil sometime to stop aging and be in every film? Cause good for him if he did. Yeah, no, he's, he's great. Uh, I think there was a campaign a couple of years ago to get him out like a star in the Hollywood walk of fame. Cause you do have to pay for those things. Um, but anyway, uh, we're here to talk about turning red, which is Toronto set. And uh, the first, I mean, it's full of firsts. It's a predominantly Asian cast, which is a first for Pixar. Uh, lone female director, which is an also uh, Pixar first. And I think it's hard to get into this movie without talking about like the the controversy last week <sighs> of the the Sean O'Connell um, yeah. cinema blend review, which uh, has since been taken down, thankfully. But it basically. His basic argument was like, unless you are a teenage girl of Asian descent from Toronto, this movie is a little too narrow focused, which I don't know what movie he watched. That yeah. wasn't the movie I watched <laughs> as a 40 year old yeah. white guy. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I don't know him. I never knew his name until this this review last week, but. Um, I sort of think that like he had to have gone into it with a bias and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, many of us have biases. We carry biases. We don't even know. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm not saying that he's racist, um, but I'm saying that he, he had an unknown bias for some reason. He, he was, he went into it ready to only see the like Uber specific Chinese 12 year old girl points mm. uh yeah I agree I um I watch this film as well and like yeah no first of all <laughs> any any uh woman who who grew up as a girl through puberty through 
sort of their first menstruation, there's like maybe 15 minutes of this film that is just like, oh my God, do I really have to live through this? (laughs) It was so well done. You know, it it was so exactly, you know, the, the doting mom who's like way too excited about your first period and oh my God, we're going to do this. And then school, it's just, it's yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So already he's wrong there because as I said, pretty much any woman who grew up as, as a girl, uh, you know, of that age, mm-hmm. totally gets that. Plus the the boy band too. <laughs> like that was universal. Not only was it, I mean, it was beyond universal. I went to the CNE at that age to see my boy band, the new kids on the block with my friends. Like it was, it was, <laughs> I could have been watching myself on this, on this film. So this guy, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. He, he went in pre-biased to to say that it was not universal i mean it's not even just you know you have your specific points of references too but i think you know everybody can sort of glom on to something whether it's you know being that kid in school that's a little too excited about going to school every day whether it's the overprotective mom whether that's like being thoroughly embarrassed by your overprotective mom like those mm-hmm. like those the scene where they go to the daisy mart which is oh yeah first of all so was cringy (laughs) first of all can we like glory to the daisy mart reference in a big hollywood movie uh especially since it doesn't exist anymore but yes uh, yes r.i.p daisy mart (laughs) but you know when i mean it's all the steps leading up to the scene where she's got this notebook where she doodles these these fantasies um you know, the, the horror about like, don't look at the, don't look at the notebook, don't look at the notebook. And then the mom finding the notebook and then marching her down to the Daisy Mart to confront the guy <laughs> um, about the, the, the romantic doodles in this notebook and doing it in front of the scorching rabble. And there's a, there's this, the part that it, that makes it kind of, kind of takes the edge off the cringe because you feel the cringe, but the part that takes the edge off is, um when the mom's talking to the, the the clerk and he has no idea who she's talking about and uh, you know Maylin Ling uh is the name of the little girl Maylin Lee and the the the, the bully kid uh is it Trevor or Taylor I can't remember Tyler is his Tyler. name yeah and he, he says like oh this Maylin Lee right here this Maylin Lee <laughs> thanks buddy Thanks. Yeah. Which made me laugh in the middle of this complete horror show that was going on. <laughs> but uh yeah, it's I mean there 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 is so much that I think is is universal about this, which is um I think where that review got it wrong. It's like I don't think the the specificity um of being set in Toronto or about being about this ethnic group or about this being the specific gender or age group or whatever it is, the specificity grounds it. Like the details, like the Toronto details, the streetcar tracks, the TTC, the Daisy Mart, the the Sky Dome, not Rogers Center, Sky Dome. And mm-hmm. I saw I saw a tweet before we started recording where somebody said, "I think the whole point of it being set in 2002 was so it could be called Sky Dome and not Rogers Center, <laughs> because yeah. to to this day people of a certain age still call it the Sky Dome." But yes, um, the the specificity grounds it; it it makes it real. The emotion is universal, but the, the having it in the Toronto set in this community 
gives it a a, a, a reality that um, I think makes it accessible because then you can sort of focus on the shared emotion of it, um, whether you're a boy or whether you're a female or whether you're white or Asian or whatever it is from Toronto, from anywhere other than Toronto. It's there really is a universality to to the emotion um, at this that I, I I struggle to understand why he didn't get get that. Well, and not only that, you know, countless, countless movies, and it, it's to the point where it's a trope. Everybody kind of, you know, counts it as a trope where mm. the city is a character, mm-hmm. right? Where the place where the event is happening or the movie is happening is so, you know, part of the whole story that you see all these monuments, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. New York City and every film that New York City is, you know, part of is there, but it's the mm-hmm. same with other cities as well, right? Mm. Like nobody nobody complains when <laughs> that's the case. Mm-hmm. Right. Nobody said that James Bond, whatever film it was, it's in New Orleans, you know, when they actually, you know, go through well, Mardi Gras. Nobody complained, oh, I can't understand any of that. Unless you've ever been to Mardi Gras, you're <laughs> never gonna understand this. Well, I mean it's even worse than that when you think about Luca which is set in an Italian seaside village. I mean, and also has like a very specific um, grounded kind of like, this is the place. Like it has this, like all these minute details about how the place is laid out um, because that director was thinking very specifically about some of uh, the, the seaside Italian towns where he spent his summer. And of course um, the, the, the director of, of Turning Red, Domi, she is from Toronto. So she's thinking very specifically about the things from her life. But when Luca came out, nobody was like, oh, this is totally not going to appeal to anyone who isn't a fish monster from a, from Italy or whatever. It just, yeah. it, it just, you know, the, you know, you know, I don't think anyone felt excluded from, I don't think anyone feels excluded from this. I think we have a bunch of whiners online, but the, the, the specificity grounds it in a way it makes the place feel more real. And I'm like, this is, it's not like it's a scaled version of Toronto. I mean, it, it's, it's it, it kind of exaggerated, but it has that Toronto feeling. It feels like it, it, it is made by someone who knows those streets mm-hmm. and um, it, well, it's just and- great detail. Yeah. And and I will say so. Um, Domi Shi was the the director of the Oscar winning short that Pixar did, um, Bao, about yeah. the woman who you know makes a little dumpling and carries a dumpling around all the time, and mm-hmm. you know until eventually she eats it, and then yeah. <laughs> as it turns out, it's a metaphor about like you know her son who she's babied and coddled and essentially consumed as a mother all of yeah. his life until now he's like I've got to go out on my own. Like yeah. it's just this beautiful story. But I remember when I saw it in the theater, I don't remember which film it was in front of, but I saw it in the theater and immediately mm. I spotted, I was like, this is set in Toronto. I recognize those, those seats because they were on a, a, a bus, a, a TCC bus. Yeah. And I was like, that is a, is a Toronto transit bus. And that is recognizable. And I love that it's in here because it's so like, it could be any bus anywhere. And the only people who it matters to are the people who see yeah. it and go, oh, I recognize that. Yeah. Uh, Bao was in front of Incredibles 2, by the way. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, there, there, there's a lot going on in this. If we're getting into the actual kind of story details, too, like th- there are a lot of anime influences. Like there's one scene where they're trying to raise money to go see the boy band 
for town which um is not a real boy band but it, it's like <laughs> it really plays into the tropes of the boy band because you have robert who has who knows french and there's an aaron mm-hmm. zed and an aaron t <laughs> and, and their music is great let me say i it's, love it's the songs yeah. it's good boy band music that's for sure um but the the like the details the as I was saying, they're trying to raise money to go see Four Town, and there's one scene where they get the idea of using the red panda um, to to raise the funds, like selling pictures and things. And there's a scene where uh, May's eyes turn to dollar signs, which I found just such a it's such a little anime detail, which mm-hmm. you've seen like in all types of anime shows. Um, you know, I, I think Sailor Moon was probably a particular influence here because <laughs> there's the scene with uh, turning into the panda where there's this kind of like pink mist that seemed very Sailor Moony. Um, but the, you know, things like the, there's a scene where she's racing across the rooftops as the, at night as the, the panda. And that seemed like she was uh, channeling Miyazaki there. There's it's felt very magical and, and uh, very fantastical, but it also felt, you know, there was a a sort of elation to it. Um, There was real emotion to watching this character leap across rooftops. So like there are incredible influences from, you know, anime from, you know, more, I don't know. Uh, artistic, <laughs> artistic, um, you know, uh, animation influences like like ha- Hayao Miyazaki, um, but then it, it is also very much um, a personal story too, and you feel that you feel that with the camaraderie with uh, the best friends as well. Um, there's great comedy in it. There are a lot of so many great one-liners. Um, <laughs> I love the the part where. Um, they're talking about how their moms will let them go to the concert. And the one, the one girl, it, it, it's just like, it's such a low key line. She was like, my mom called, my mom says it's stripper music. <laughs> it made me laugh that, you know, yeah. it's, cause it's such, it's such a line a mom would have about, uh, you know, a, a four town style band. And I mean, there's so much, there's so much humor in it. There's so much art. It, it is. Um, plus I, you know, the technical aspects of the animation too were really, really well done. Like the fur feels so real. The the animation on the fur. There's a scene where the dad is cooking dinner, that mm. is uh, straight up food porn in the middle of this <laughs> Pixar movie, <laughs> um, with the, the the luscious animation of the soy sauce um, yes. flowing out of the bottle. It is, uh, you know, the art. I, I there is a lot to love about the artistry of the film. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I agree with you. But what I also like about this is that um, I I feel like they didn't. So in Encanto, I was really mm. um, impressed with the animation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say like the the way they built their characters in Encanto versus the way they built them here in this film, I feel like the characters are built more like animation characters. Mm-hmm. You know, they have more of the exaggerated features, the exaggerated like body types, that sort of thing. Whereas in Kanto, I think they actually were trying a little bit more to um, kind of meet reality a little bit mm. with with the you know faces and and body types and stuff like that. But I think that that works here because it is such a youthful story. Yeah, not that Encanto isn't, but 
you know, this is really, you know, by and about and for people who are sort of that age and can feel, mm-hmm. you know, see that there's so much, there's, there's so much to, to, for younger people to really see here too. Mm. Like, I, I also think, cause you know, we have talked about how like turning into this panda sort of the metaphor for menstruation and, and becoming a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also get, you know, the, the fact that all of the women before her, like all of her aunts and her mom and her grandmother all had to go through this too. Right. And we get to see how that has affected all of them. Mm. Um, and there's this really great story of how, you know, mothers and daughters have to have to interact with each other and how really, really difficult it is in that, that age. Like, um, yeah, it was, it was awful. Like going through, going through (laughs) puberty. And again, I'm sure it's similar as, as you know, for boys, but going through puberty as a girl, just like your mother is somehow your best friend and your most hated enemy at the exact mm. same time. Mm-hmm. Like she's the only person who can really sort of help you understand what you're going through. And the only person you really like want when you're really upset about something, but is also the person who is making you upset about things. Right. And it's really, it's this really difficult thing. And I love that they really talked about that. You know, they didn't shy away from the fact that she really did love her mom. You know, she's like, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm my mom's best friend. I've got like, I'm, I'm her, like, I got her back and she's got my back and, but yet still allowed her to be her own person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got to, you know, meet, like I said, the other, the other women in the family and see how they had to go through the same thing. And also what I really love is like, at the end, there was no right way to deal with this mm. panda, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, to deal with the person that you're becoming because, you know, nobody, nobody faulted anybody for the decision they made on how they're going to deal with their own, you know, and in this case, the panda is actually really emotions. Like it starts as a metaphor for menstruation, but really it is about like all those emotions. And the fact that as, as women, we, you know, have so many of them and we have to tone it all down all the time Mm, to do mm -hmm. anything and what do you do with that when you can't let it out Mm. and you know i I love that it was it was okay it was okay that some people were like you know what i i'm going to continue being a reserved person who doesn't turn into a panda (laughs) Mm -hmm. there was no shame in making that decision just like on the other side there was no shame in making the decision not to do something about the panda and the fact that the, the panda uh, the, the, it's viewed as a curse but it that's not a kind of how it started and you get the story about how the panda was um summoned by their ancestor who was looking for a way to protect her children and at a time when the, the men are away at war and um it, it's kind of starts and then you there is that scene at the end where may makes that connection with that ancestor who almost kinds of kind of embraces her um willingness to make the choice of staying connected to her inner panda 
um, that, you know, gives her kind of like this blessing that, you know, it's okay if you want to have the band to hang around and, and, and not um, lock it in a four town souvenir is what happens in the end. <laughs> in the um, Tamagotchi. <laughs> or the Tamagotchi. That's right. <laughs> Which is a great callback. Cause I remember how huge those things were. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that like all of these, these women, so all of her, mm-hmm. her aunts and her grandmother, mm-hmm. when things got real bad, mm-hmm. they all, like without fail they all said it's it's time <laughs> it sounds ridiculous but it's time to release the the panda like release the panda yeah, yeah they were ready <laughs> like they were fierce women they're like i know that i have the strength inside me and mm-hmm. it's okay i'm to never use it and to just mm-hmm. keep it hidden but right now it's necessary and and they did not hesitate to to let out that fierceness to do what needed to be done which was mm-hmm. really beautiful yeah, no, it's um, I, I love the the climax, the <laughs> the giant panda attack on Skydome. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, it's there, there's so much fun in, in this movie. Although you know, I was gonna say there are serious messages, but um, I, I I don't I don't want to say they're serious with a grumpy face. They they are. Um, you know, it is, it is a fun movie up and down. There's so much energy. And um, I, I saw somebody note this online and I feel it has to be mentioned because um, we look, you know, these Disney products are, are sometimes just so kind of, uh, I don't, I don't want to say emotionless, but you know, and I, I, I do want to address it. Somebody uh, I'll quote the person who said this online. This is the one of the horniest Disney movies that there has ever been. <laughs> and that's not to say that it's hypersexualized. It's to say that, you know, it willfully dives in and addresses the fact that these girls uh, do have crushes on these like boy banders. And uh, she's drawing uh, these kind of romantic doodles in her in her notebook. And um, it is it, it sort of openly embraces um you know, r- romantic, romantic ideas that, you know, the, uh, growing into your sexuality and um, it, it's all done in this very like innocent way, of course. But I mean, there is a needle drop in this movie featuring Beyonce's bootylicious. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you yeah, can't say I mean... that about any, every Disney movie. And I feel like it, it has to be said that a lot of these, a lot of these Disney movies just feel so repressed. Anyway, sorry, you were saying. Well, yeah, I was just going to mention on that, like they they do definitely do that. And, you know, the doodles and things like that. Mm. But it is it is really the sort of um, uh, sexuality of a of a, you know, 12 or 13 year old girl. Mm. Like, you know, there's nothing. It's very, very innocent. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yes, yes. I don't even think there's the pictures even of kissing. It's just like embracing. It's just holding each other right and yeah yeah it's it's very much i mean i guess that's where the the next coming of age story comes in where where girls get to an older age and they go oh hold on this is actually about more than just you know maybe holding hands right yeah (laughs) and what do we do but that's very much what it is here and and it's not um well, you say it's the horniest of, of Pixar films. I would agree with you. Uh, 
and and that's where it ends right there i will say the um the robert as a as a merman was a little bit weird Um, yeah (laughs) i feel like that's a very specific um a very specific fetish that some people have yeah uh and that's okay i mean you also have uh you know cologne uh cologne ads with um uh adam uh i can't think of his last name as a as a uh you know a centaur right um yeah so apparently (laughs) apparently uh there are more of us women who are into um uh, man animal hybrids than i know so (laughs) while the while the robert is a merman didn't really do it for me it must have done it for a lot of other people yeah it's it, it just feels um again true to to the characters um true to their age um and yeah it is very very innocent um but i i did like that that turn of phrase when i was looking at some of the online commentary that said it was like the horniest pixar movie because i mean it is and i i think adding to that it just you know it, it again coming off the week or one of the other big disney stories of the week was um Bob, the CEO Bob Chappick's uh, less than, shall we say, enthusiastic support for LGBTQ employees in, in front of this ridiculous Florida law, this don't say gay law that, you know, we get this movie that um, does does appreciate that, you know, young people um, part of part of a young person's life is um, embracing the or learning how to embrace the shall we say the romantic side of life which is something that i think disney movies recoil from unless it's like sort of this pure true love kind of thing uh from the 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 cinderella and snow white uh age of disney yeah yeah thank god we're not there anymore (laughs) well i mean there is a live action Snow White in the works. So we'll see how that. Yeah, I, I have successfully <laughs> avoided every live action remake of a classic Disney animation. So oh, really? I'm, I'm going to gonna keep on that streak, I think. I think well, I think Maleficent has merit, but we'll have to get into that another time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. If you want to listen to it again, you can find us on our website and creditsradioshow.com. You can download us from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. When you're on Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just search for End Credits on CFRU in your Spotify app. You can also find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And Candice, if people are on the internet and they Mm -hmm. want to find you, how can they do that? Well, they can find me on every every single platform <laughs> all over the internets at Sin48, that's C-I-N-N-4-8. Um, I'm still looking for those letterbox, uh, <laughs> you know, followers, but whatever. <laughs> Apparently that's not going to happen. Uh, but there there is a new episode of the Village podcast by The Bookshelf that mm-hmm. has come out this week as well for your listening pleasure. Mm-hmm. Letterbox is where you go when you get a sick of film Twitter, I'm learning. Anyway, uh, I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for News and Politics on Open Sources Guelph with my co-host there, Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and you, you can find me there personally at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can go to my News and Politics site at guelphpolitico.com. 
www.cfru.ca. And you can stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return, of course, next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits. And we will see you then.